Hello, and I'd like to extend a massive welcome to all of you listeners to this new and exciting podcast series called Gastro News, which is part of a wider family of podcasts that we're going to be producing under the title MedReg News. It's something we've had in mind for a while. We are very excited about this, and we hope you are too. My name is Stephen. I'm an elderly care doctor and teaching fellow based at East Surrey Hospital. And I am one of the team behind the MDT podcast, Educating People About Aging. Well worth a listen if you get the chance. But what we'd like to provide with this new series of podcasts is somewhere for registrar level trainees to gain insight and expert opinion on the topics that experienced consultants in their fields consider to be the most important things to grasp and understand more fully. Within the MedReg news series, We're going to start out with episodes focusing on gastroenterology and cardiology under the extremely original titles Gastro News and Cardiology News. And in due course, we hope to cover other medical specialties too. So if you're tuning into this and you'd like us to put together episodes focused on your own area of medicine, please give us a shout. You can email us at medregnews at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at MedRegNews. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. But to start off, this is episode one in our Gastro News series. We'd initially planned for this to consist of five gastro episodes, but we've had such a fantastic response from the consultants we've contacted that we have already produced six episodes for you and hope to make even more in the future. As I mentioned, the main reason we've put this gastro news series together is for anyone who's a gastroenterology trainee in the UK or beyond to help you catch up on what you might have missed in your specialty training over the past two years. It's been a difficult spell for all of us since the start of 2020 and COVID restrictions have made it tough for many of you to get as much hands-on experience as you might have liked or as many chances to draw alongside your consultant colleagues free from distraction to learn from them about the intricacies of the specialty. So for all of you who have struggled to find consultants to chat to, we're going to bring the consultants to you. Over the coming episodes, we're going to look at topics such as nutrition assessment, high output stomas, upper GI bleeds, and decompensated liver disease. We are keen to take you on a whistle-stop tour through gastroenterology, with a whole host of consultant guests acting as our tour guides to help us along the way. In this first episode, we're going to focus on viral hepatitis, and we've got a brilliant guest to help talk us through all the ins and outs of it. Dr. Matthew Cowan is a consultant gastroenterologist and hepatologist at the Surrey and Sussex Healthcare Trust, He is also Honorary Consultant Hepatologist at St George's Hospital London, where he helps run clinical trials of new treatments for viral hepatitis. Prior to joining the Surrey and Sussex Healthcare Trust, Dr Cowan was Consultant Hepatologist at St Mary's Hospital London. He trained in London and worked at the Liver Failure Unit at King's College Hospital, the Liver Centre at the Royal Free Hospital and the Royal Postgraduate Medical School at Hammersmith Hospital. In addition to all that, he was awarded a PhD for work in developing novel methods of diagnosing liver fibrosis at St George's Hospital. Dr Cowan is also the lead clinician for the nutrition service and runs a weekly nutrition ward round, as well as carrying out regular outpatient clinics at East Surrey, Crawley and Horsham hospitals. 
As I said, he is joining us on this episode to walk us through the topic of viral hepatitis. And so I began our time together by asking Dr. Cowan to explain how we differentiate between the different types of viral hepatitis. We've given them uh, letters as we've discovered them sequentially, um, but this is not really a particularly useful way to remember things. So I think what we said we'd talk about a little bit more was the viruses that cause chronic or long-term infection, which is uh, hepatitis B, hepatitis C and hepatitis D. Hepatitis A and E are important. These cause normally acute self-limiting illnesses, so people will present with an acute hepatitis, so a substantially raised ALT. They may become jaundiced, but they will get better by themselves fairly quickly, and they have no long-term morbidity. So what we're going to talk about today is hepatitis B and hepatitis C predominantly. Hepatitis D is is rare and very much a, a subspecialist interest and we'll park that for another time. And with the two that you mentioned, hepatitis B and hepatitis C, what might we see in patients who present with those? So the majority of people with hepatitis B and hepatitis C have no idea that they've got them. These viruses are transmitted through contact with blood and body fluids. So um, uh, in the UK, we see two groups of people um, with hepatitis B and hepatitis C. We see uh, people who are born in the UK who come into contact with them normally in their adult life, either through um, risky sexual practices or injection drug use. We also see a second group of people, and these are people who have been born or brought up in areas of the world with high endemicity of Hep B and Hepatitis C, and that's uh, Africa, Asia, Eastern Europe. So in my clinic, there's two groups of people. There are people who have been born in the UK who've got maybe a a more interesting social history, and then there is a, a group of people from these parts of uh, of the world and the majority of them don't actually know that they've got the virus until they've been tested for some reason. And because there are certain people groups who are more likely to have these viruses does that influence how you go about your testing in terms of which people you choose to test? Yeah absolutely I mean this is my this is my fav- my favorite topic i think everybody should be tested for them but that's not realistic and we do have uh, government guidance from from nice and other organizations about who we should be testing for these viruses so we should be testing all people who are born outside the uk in these high prevalence areas anybody who has ever used injection drug use or has had uh, sexual practices that may put them at risk and we'd much rather test people and have a negative result than not test people and never find out. The problem with these viruses is they are asymptomatic, they sit in the liver just causing very gradually progressive liver fibrosis in in a group of people and you don't know about it until they present with the, the the consequences of cirrhosis or liver cancer but they're eminently treatable and if we can detect them at an early stage then uh, we can prevent these clinically significant things mm-hmm. from happening. And how far down the line might you see those complications appear? 
Yeah, so this is a this is a fascinating subject. So, and the two viruses behave very differently. So, if we think of hepatitis C first, if you are if you were unkind enough to go out and infect a hundred adults with hepatitis C, and uh, you left them alone for thirty years, and let's assume that none of them died from anything else, at the end of that thirty years, you'd find a third of them had cirrhosis, but two thirds of them wouldn't. If you then leave them for another 20 years, you'll find two-thirds of them have cirrhosis. So this is after 50 years of untreated infection. But a third of people aren't progressing. And with hepatitis C, the things that make your liver fibrosis, your liver scarring, progress more quickly is um, being a boy rather than a girl, getting the infection at a later stage in your life, so if you're older when you contract it. Um, if you are overweight or if you have other risk factors for other forms of liver disease. So people who drink get accelerated fibrosis. And interestingly, people with HIV, hepatitis C co-infection, also get accelerated fibrosis. So with hepatitis C, the amount of liver damage that you see is, is really a consequence of how long you've had it for. Hepatitis B is very different, and it's a fascinating virus because the hepatitis B itself doesn't cause any damage in the liver. So the damage that's caused in the liver for people with hepatitis B is caused by the body's immune system trying to clear the hep B. So the vast majority of hepatitis B infected people that we see in the UK um, are peacefully coexisting with the virus, and they have very low rates of liver fibrosis and liver scarring and liver cirrhosis and liver cancer. But a proportion of people um, uh, are at risk and trying to tease out these different groups is really where you need the specialist knowledge and the specialist clinic. So I guess if we want to catch people who have these viral infections before it progresses to cirrhosis and liver cancer, what treatments can you offer if somebody who is asymptomatic has a positive test? So if we think of hepatitis C first, we've got a number of very effective, very well tolerated um, tablets that we use to treat. The treatment of hepatitis C has changed enormously in my career. When I started my interest in gastroenterology, we would give people a year's worth of treatment with interferon and ribavirin, and you might see treatment response rates of 50% with that and these were difficult drugs to take. Now we've got these fantastic second and third generation oral antiviral agents, we're using treatment courses of 8-12 to 12 weeks generally of a couple of tablets a day and uh, we see treatment response rates of 98% and we see that in all comers. So it used to be that it was much more difficult to treat in certain groups but we see excellent response rates with treatment with hepatitis C. And the thing about hepatitis C is it's an RNA virus. If you treat it and you get rid of it, it's gone forever. And if you can treat your hepatitis C um, before people have developed significant liver fibrosis, then you see long-term remodeling in the liver and the long-term risk of serious liver disease, liver cirrhosis, liver cancer goes back to the same as the general population. Mm. which is fantastic. Obviously, if you wait until people have cirrhosis before you treat the hepatitis C, they are left with cirrhosis, and they're left with the, the risks of decompensation and liver cancer, but they do drop after treatment. 
So that's hepatitis C. Hepatitis B, we don't have drugs that get rid of it. We have, again, effective oral antiviral agents that are safe and can be taken long term. They suppress viral replication, and by doing that, they bring the viral levels in the blood down to very low levels. That means that the body's uh, anti-hepatitis B immune response calms down and you no longer get the liver inflammation that leads to liver fibrosis. And here again, if you can intervene before the liver is severely damaged, then you can give people long lives with risks of serious liver disease the same as that of the general population. Again, if you wait until people have liver cirrhosis, then you do have risks of decompensation and liver cancer, but they fall relative to untreated patients. Oh, it's incredible to hear about the advances that have been made in such a relatively short period of time. Are there any other exciting developments at the minute that you could share with us from either your reading or from wider research? So the problem that we're faced with with hepatitis C at the moment, we have a target from the World Health Organization to try and eradicate hepatitis C. Um, the problem that we're getting now is actually trying to find the people who are infected with it. And this means that we have extensive outreach programs from the hospitals targeting at-risk populations. So here at East Surrey, we have a nurse who will go out and run sessions in the drug treatment centres. We have in-reach into the homeless services, the prison population, and uh, also some of the immigration services. And this is where the hep C challenge is, certainly in the UK. Hepatitis B, the, uh, the challenge for us here is trying to develop drugs that will actually get rid of the hepatitis B. What we can do at the moment is control replication, but this does mean that people need to be taking medication potentially lifelong. The, the drugs that we use have been around for... 10, 20 years, but um, we, and they seem to be safe as far as we can tell, but we really don't know whether they will remain safe for 50 years. So uh, the interest with hepatitis B is trying to develop agents that uh, will stimulate um, uh, the body's immune system to getting rid of the virus. There are some agents in clinical trials, but none have come through to uh, general clinical use yet. But as I said, hep C's changed enormously in my career, which we are talking the thick end of 20 years here, so it's not that short a time, but I'm sure we'll see a change with hep B before I retire. And this isn't just something that gastro trainees will see. People from these at-risk people groups may well appear on a general medical take. So for anyone assessing a patient from one of these people groups, how should what we've discussed today influence the questions that they ask when going through their history taking? I think the question, the only question that they should need to ask is, would you mind if we tested you for bloodborne viruses, if they consider that they're at risk? Um, that's if the doctor considers they're at risk rather than, rather than the patient. We uh, are well aware of the incidence of HIV and we're all used to testing for that widely and we ought to be testing for hepatitis B and hepatitis C as well. These are treatable 
conditions. The other thing which is worth mentioning is that they're transmissible conditions. If we don't detect the people who are carrying the virus, then there is a risk of further transmission through the community. So you can break the chain here. And if we think about hepatitis B, one of the issues that we see is uh, if you contract the hepatitis B when you are very young, when you're, when you're born, in essence, by, trans by um, contact with, or contamination with your mother's infected body fluids, then we see the natal immune system has very little antiviral activity, well, none whatsoever. So we see tremendously high levels of hepatitis B DNA, hepatitis B viruses in people's blood. And then normally, around about people's late teens, early 20s, we see the beginning of immune recognition. And then we see a mild flare of hepatitis, which people generally aren't aware of, but the hepatitis B viral levels fall substantially at that point. Now, if you think about the time that people are generally becoming sexually active, um, we are talking about this time. So we have a group of people who are sexually experimenting, who may not be quite as good at using barrier forms of contraception, um, who are potentially infecting other people. So if you were to try and summarise all of that into one take-home message for all the trainees working on the wards today about viral hepatitis, what would you say? I would say be aware of these viruses, test people who may be at risk, and then refer them through to specialist services. We have very effective treatments to prevent complications of liver disease, and we can uh, reduce transmission and protect other people. That's all for this episode of Gastro News. We hope you found it useful. If you have, please tell your friends and colleagues within the specialty to make use of the podcast series and share it as widely as possible. As I said in the intro, you can follow us on Twitter at MedRegNews or fire us an email at medregnews at gmail.com. In our next episode, we'll be delving into the topic of nutrition and how to assess nutritional status in the patients that we see. So make sure you come back for that. Until then, thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you again next time here on Gastro News.